Welcome to Reviving Virtue, a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering, together, a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. Okay, we are back with our second episode of Reviving Virtue. As I mentioned in the introductory podcast episode that I learned after recording episode one, that reading a 14-page script word for word and diving into every minute detail word by word may be a little less than inspiring to listen to. So with this chapter two of The Public and Its Problems by John Dewey, this experience will be less scripted and more engaging, I hope. Chapter two is titled Discovery of the State, and Dewey is concerned with the conditions which promote and obstruct the organization of the public into a social group with definite functions which he is calling a state. He reviews the ideas he presented in the first chapter, and I should mention, as I did not in episode one, that this book is from a series of lectures he gave. So they are presented as you would expect the beginning of a second lecture of a series. He recaps the central themes he presented in chapter one, that searching for the origins of the state in causal forces, conscious intent, or some mystical spirit is misguided. Instead, Dewey suggests that a public emerges when consequences of actions extend beyond the individuals and groups directly involved, and a state forms by establishing agencies to manage these consequences. I was listening to my first episode that I recorded, and it was, I was using the Spotify app, and I was like, well, what is it like for the average listener to listen to this? And I think one thing I did not really get across, which is really critical to Dewey, is this idea of consequences. And I think it's critical to understand for our modern conception of this, of our individual self-realization here in America and most Western democracies. The idea that what's primary is the individual and what we want to do in our own atomistic way, separated from everyone else, when we only come together when we decide we will voluntarily come together. What Dewey is saying is that that approach is not proper. I read the, the further chapters. I'm already getting ahead of myself a little bit, but he actually spends an incredible amount of time, several pages worth, in chapter three on this idea of the individual and its primacy in our democracy and in the ideals of liberalism. The idea of the way we understand the individual is this conception where consequences is not really part of the equation when we decide to enact certain actions. So what I really want to do is for you to try to remember as we go through this episode, and if you're listening to this before episode one, if you go back to episode one, to think about consequences and where this sits within how people come together and form a public and how the laws are generated and the languages we use, the vocabularies we use to describe our public, our virtues and our morals and our ethics. And think about how consequences are absent from our, from our contemporary vocabularies. So continuing on, remember the blood feud example he gave in chapter one, where it becomes of the public's concern when a feud between parties extends for generations and infects the rest of the community. So a public emerges out of this. Dewey criticizes the idea of an all-inclusive and universally applicable notion of the state as it ignores the reality of diverse and localized states within their own boundaries, limitations, and interactions. He points out that temporal and geographical localizations is an essential trait of a state. 
This idea of an all-inclusive universal application of what a state should be regardless of its physical and temporal location is incoherent to Dewey. Dewey emphasizes over and over again, you cannot formulate a quantitative scientific notion of a state, in quotes, and just plop it down on a group of people who may be associated within geographic limits and say, all should have followed this arbitrary set of rules just because we said so over here in this other state. He thinks that's ridiculous. Dewey states, the notion of an inherent universality in the associative force at once breaks against the obvious fact of a plurality of states, each localized within its boundaries, limitations, its, its indifference, and even hostility to other states. The best that metaphysical monistic philosophies of politics can do with this fact is to ignore it. Or in the case of Hegel and his followers, a mythical philosophy of history is constructed to eke out the deficiencies of a mythical doctrine of statehood. The universal spirit seizes upon one temporal local nation after another as the vehicle for its objectification of reason and will. Dewey is not a fan of Hegelian universalism, and I'm going to guess he's not a fan of Marxism either. But in any event, Dewey is criticizing this notion of a universal associated force that is contradicted by the existence of multiple states, each with its own boundaries, limitations, and relationships with each other. Dewey underscores the importance of considering the actual consequences and relationships between people, rather than relying on abstract or metaphysical explanations. I mean, let's think about this. He's saying what matters is how we relate to each other right now. And what should not get into, in the way of this is either a person or a group of people who at some point in time decided that the way we should interact with each other should always be the same, irregardless of our circumstances. He's saying that's, that's incoherent. And I agree with, I mean, that's, a, it's a, it's, that's an authoritarian viewpoint. However, what really weaves through our modern life, these ideas that there are universals that we should abide by. The idea behind my podcast, Reviving Virtue, is the project of articulating new moral virtues, new narratives that work for us now. Yes, we can look at what they did in the past, and we can let that inform how we interpret the present. But we cannot let what people did in the past and wrote down and let that dictate how we behave today. The world we live in now has never existed before. And the world that we will have tomorrow has yet to come. And we need to be ready to engage with that. This is like Dewey's central theme through this book. This serves as an excellent starting point for examining the broader implications of emphasizing local contingent circumstances, which is what I was just talking about, which recognizes the importance of time, place, and the unique characteristics and historical context of the people involved in shaping the formation of a public and state. In Dewey's time, society was transitioning into late modernity, and he observed the ongoing consolidation of various forces and influences, which further highlights the need to consider the local and specific factors when understanding the development and organization of states and publics. He could see the detrimental conception of universals that erase the local knowledge and culture. Dewey creates a framework for us to try to conceptualize this idea he's presenting here. Like we have, when you think of like a small group, a town, almost everything, politics and family and all that, it's all one thing. They're all intertwined. They're not separate from each other because it, everyone knows everyone and everyone's in everyone's business. And then at the other end of this extreme, there are social groups separated by geographical barriers, languages, and cultures. So, I mean, the United States is like that. I've been very lucky. I've been to all 50 states. And it's remarkable, even today, how different regions of this country are. This country is massive. 
for anyone who's been over to Europe and traveled over Europe, in like four hours, you can drive through three or four countries, depending on where you begin and where you end, and go through multiple different, you know, you know, if you live in California in four hours and you left San Francisco you and just drove north, you still wouldn't get out of the state of California yet. It takes about five hours to get to the border of Oregon. I know this very well. I've probably done it about 300 times, and I'm not exaggerating. You know, in a five-hour drive in Europe, that can take you through multiple countries. So what's interesting, though, and what I'm trying to say is that in the United States, it has a unique problem in that it, it really encompasses so many different localized sources of knowledge and knowing and culture and tries to wrap it all up into this big idea of the United States of America. And Dewey is talking about these two extremes of the small localized to the very large. And Dewey states in this section that politics is not a branch of morals. It is submerged in morals. All virtues are summed up in filial piety. Dewey is saying that politics is deeply intertwined with morality. Rather than being a separate or independent domain, politics is incoherent if you try to separate morals from it. However, this is no small quibble, as this gets at the root of our political disagreements in the United States today. There is an ongoing debate about the relationship between politics and morality in this country, whether they should be separate or, or intertwined. Some people argue for a strict separation, often citing the principle of the separation of church and state to support their views, as one example. They believe that political decisions should be based on objective criteria and not influenced by moral or religious beliefs. I'm going to go a little aside here. This is a problem. I used, to sub I used to give money to the groups that were right on the leading edge of making sure that the separation of church and state was kept as is, as it's written in the Constitution. I actually think we should revisit that idea. And I am not a religious person, but I believe that this laser-focused attention on the separation of church and state is one of the reasons that people like myself on the left have a hard time understanding morals and the importance of morals and virtues within our politics. We'll explore this in the next episode. So going on with what I've had prepared. On the other hand, there are those who believe that moral values should play a central role in political decision-making. They argue that politics is inherently value-laden and that it is impossible to make meaningful political choices without considering moral principles. Now, this older notion when communities were smaller in the time and place in which these isolated, pre-globally interconnected worlds existed, the idea of the virtues of the family and the ideas of a telos, which comes from the word theology, which we'll get to. So the idea of a telos that extended to the notion of the good life bound up in those family traditions made sense. It was legible, you could say. But as our modern societies began to grow, and a very important point here, as the expansion of the second industrial revolution led to a much more complex mode of economic organization, and people split into hyper-specialized skills, and we became more mobile, all of a sudden, those close-knit family ties and virtues became illegible, as people became more and more intertwined with other cultures and ways of being and knowing. This is where today the, the idea of virtues has shifted away from what Dewey says. And this word he uses, I just have such a hard time saying because I don't think we ever hear it in our modern culture. Filial piety. This is the way of saying family loyalty and devotion or respect for one's parents. That respect and loyalty one shows to one's parents and ancestors to larger, more expansive notions such as social justice and equality, environment, stewardship, which may be seen in ecofeminism, for example. And we also see the ideas of, of individual freedom and autonomy that is oft associated with libertarians. 
Now, this is getting at the point of this podcast, how we untangle this knot of ideals, virtues, desires, and overall confusion about how to make sense of all of this so that we can weave a new moral narrative that articulates a set of virtues that are expansive enough and at the same time legible so that we can provide a solid background upon which we can make sense of our lives and the actions and choices we make. Think of the anxiety that we have in this culture, this lack of resonance with each other, this lack of resonance with ourselves. And we have all these apps that tell us how many steps we should take in a day, be mindfulness about, you know, do, do mindful meditation and all these things we're trying to do to bring some sort of sense of understanding, some sense of not understanding, just some sense of just some sort of stability in our lives. I truly think that the main reason we don't have this stability and this anxiety, there's not one reason. I should not say it. I should not phrase it that way. There are a multitude. But one of the main reasons is not having a moral background, a, te a telos, a theology that we can work towards together where we all have these narratives that we can tell, that we can associate with each other, that we all agree upon that this is what we should be doing together as a community. And what is a community? Is it your friends at school? Is it your family? When, I, when I'm saying this out loud, and this is why I'm doing this podcast, I can hear that the words I'm saying, they're the words that I have so often in my life associated with right-wing conservatism. They talk about the, the value of the family, and the value of morals and ethics and virtues, but they have a very specific conception of that. And then on the left, of course, there's, there's the artistic self. I, this has been my life, that I see the good life. The goodness is in engaging with culture and creating culture. And that's how this moral vocabulary is produced and disseminated through music and through art. But this way of engaging with the world, it feels very bifurcated. You have the one side that is looking at the old ways, the conservative ways, but their ways are also incoherent if you ever try to study it. And then you have on the left, traditionally, we have the artistic ways, which is also very much self-centered. Like uh, it's, the, I, it's the way I experience the world and the way I experience the world. And then I transmutate that into some art, into some music. And then I put that out there. Right now, three years after the start of COVID, People are spending incredible sums of money, and I would argue some that don't even have the money to spend, but they're finding ways to get this money to go see concerts like Taylor Swift and all the other big pop stars today. They're just selling out in minutes for incredible sums of money, each one of these tickets. People are desperate for coming together in the community, and that's what these musical experiences provide, a place for people to come together. But who's at the center of it? That's a musical artist who has a unique perspective on the world. Now, what I'm talking about here might seem a little confusing, and I'm still slightly confused about how I want to articulate it. But this is coming from when I've read Charles Taylor's work, especially from his book, Sources of the Self. He talks about this transition of the artist from one in which it's an external experience, kind of almost a two-way thing with the world, to an internalization, right? this withdrawal from the world, into a private world of our, you know, and you, and this creates the whole myth of the tortured artist, right? That only that specific person has the talents and the ability to tune into this higher sense of connection with the world, with the universe, with each other, and all these different fields of understanding. And only they have an ability to transmutate that into a cohesive 
artistic expression that then we all look at and wonder. This was my guiding principle for the majority of my adult life. And now I'm looking at that and thinking, I don't know, man. I don't know. Because, you know, is the world getting better? I'm saying no, it's not. This is why I'm sitting here talking to this. The world is not getting better. It's getting worse. All right. And so maybe this this conception of how we create art and culture and how we put the up on a pedestal, the individual artist who has some special knowledge into the inner workings of the universe that they can pour it into that and then put it out to the world. Why and why are only they available at this awe, at tapping into this awe? I think every single human being has this ability. And I also think there's a special power that when we can actually do this together in conversation, the complexity of that is how do you make that legible in such a large, diverse community like the United States of America? And how do you do this in a globalized world with neoliberalism and the logic of neoliberalism, of this hyper hyper-connected globalized world of globalized finance, the commodification of everything, right? the quantification of everything? How do we bring about an entire change of how we look at these elements of our culture? I just don't know if the idea of an individual artist is really helping us. But I don't know. I don't even know if I agree with what I'm saying right now. Maybe this will get cut out. Maybe not. So I'd said this episode would be a little more free-flowing, and so it is. So let's pick up to where we just talked about. We were just talking about the whole idea of providing a solid background upon which we can make sense of our lives and our actions and our choices and the choices we make. When I'm discussing these ideas with you, I've been thinking about that classic learning test that's coming out of Florida, led by Jeremy Wayne Tate. It seems to me that he and the groups of people associated with this movement are trying to provide a quick fix to the issue of the lack of a legible moral narrative in late modernity, which we both agree is in crisis. I'm in agreement with Jeremy that we are in a bad place right now. However, I view the project of tackling this crisis as one that should leverage our creative abilities to forge new narratives that respect and reflect the needs and desires of our place and time. This project should prioritize each individual's agency, creativity, and courage to persist in the face of modern challenges. Now, I put, when I wrote this, I can see I put individuals agency, and I just got done explaining to you that I wonder about the creative individual that we conceptualize in modernity here of the artist. And what I'm thinking of is that, the way I view this is that every single person on this planet has creativity, and each one of them are courageous, and each one has the agency, each one has the ability to tap into this in their own special way. I know as I'm saying this, and I and to my listeners, I am aware of the situations that people are put in that are outside of their control. So they may not have the agency to do that right now. And that's what's wrong with the world, to be honest with you. And what we need to do, the way I want to think about this, though, is this agency, creativity, and courage. That This needs to be a suite of virtues that we look towards. And we can throw against the political actions we take. You know, When we decide to vote on a law, does this give people agency to enact their own creative ideas in community with others to make the world a better place, to make a world in a way that means something to them in their community? And do they have the courage to push those limits, to persist in the face of challenges? And we know what those challenges are. To dare, to dare to say, to dare to even do something that pushes against the traditions that we live and be and move through. I'm not talking about anarchy. I'm talking about allowing ourselves to question where we are 
and to ask, could there be a better way? Could we improve upon this? Or should we just put all of this over here and start building a new thing over here? And how do we do all this so that we don't cause massive disruption and upheaval? I just feel like we're not having these discussions at all because we don't value creativity. We don't value courage as I conceptualize it. And we don't view agency. We don't really allow people to make the decisions that they would really want to make. I'm sure some people listening to this may say, that's crazy. You can just let people do whatever they want. It's going to be chaos. This is what conservatives say all the time. We're going to turn into like, you know, it's going to be complete chaos and the end of the world, Mad Max, whatever, blah, 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 blah. I mean, this stuff, it's, oh my God. You listen to these arguments and you just, how, how <laughs> and it's just, it's just so, it doesn't take in the nuances and the complexities and the beautifulness of life. And under, it's like, it's a fear-based, right? So it's the opposite of courage. It's cowardness, right? And we didn't get to this point because we were afraid of, of taking chances and growing and experimenting. Where am I? Back to this critical learning test. So in, so like I just said, this project, should we should prioritize people's individual agency, creativity, and courage to persist and face the challenges. The courage to persist in the face of challenges. I see Tate's CLT test, his program, as taking a shortcut. It's a common trait among conservatives. And replacing those three virtues that I just talked about with powerlessness, conformity, and cowardice that's wrapped around this conception that the virtues that were written by Aristotle over 2,000 years ago, they're just fine as they are, and we're just going to use those. I'm sorry, but that's cowardly, and it removes our agency, and it denies our creativity, the very things that make humans humans. I mean, this may seem caustic to you as, as I'm using this language, and maybe even a little unfair, but to be successful in bringing about a coherent moral narrative for our time, we must be courageous enough to tell the story as it is today here and now, not 2,400 years ago, without hiding behind these social niceties and agreeing to disagree. What is that? Oh, we agree to disagree. Oh, come on. That's cowardly. This is not a matter of mere disagreement about whether one book should be read over another. It's about respecting and honoring the freedom and beauty of every individual's unique ability to be an active, productive, and creative agent in the construction of a peaceful, vibrant society. There's a remarkable book by Paul Tillich, who was an influential theologian and philosopher is titled The Courage to Be, which explores the existential challenges individuals face in finding meaning and purpose amidst the anxieties of modern life. Drawing from Tillich's concept of the courage to be, we can better understand the importance of cultivating courage and resilience in the face of the challenges that come with constructing a coherent moral narrative in today's society. The Courage to Be emphasizes the individual's ability to confront the anxieties of existence and find meaning in life. This idea aligns with our goal of promoting individual agency, creativity, and courage. There's that trifecta again. In addressing the crisis of constructing new moral narratives in modern society. Incorporating Tillich's ideas into our approach to tackling this crisis, we can encourage individuals to not only embrace their creative abilities, but also to face the uncertainties and complexities of the modern world with courage. This will empower them to actively participate in the construction of a peaceful, vibrant society that genuinely reflects our contemporary moral needs and desires. By doing so, we can counter the powerlessness, conformity, and cowardice that might be perpetuated by shortcuts like the CLT test and program out of Florida. Ultimately, it is through the courage to be that individuals can effectively contribute to the development of a meaningful and relevant moral narrative for our time. 
transcending the limitations imposed by outdated ideals from ancient texts. Tillich has a great phrase from this book. He uses the phrase, in spite of, to emphasize the courage that individuals must have to confront existential anxieties in order to embrace their authentic selves. Even in the face of uncertainties, doubt, or despair, in spite of all that we must endure, the mere courage to be is a courageous act, and it is a necessary act. It is a necessary act. All right, returning to the book. So Dewey discussed the shift of certain matters from private to public domains and vice versa. One example he provides is the development of the King's Peace in England, where jurisdictions of kingly courts was extended to include offenses previously addressed by local courts, effectively transforming a private issue into a public issue. This shift was driven by a desire to increase the power and profit of the monarchy. In contemporary life, private businesses can become affected with a public interest due to, as he says, quantitative expansion. A reverse example is the transfer of religious rights and beliefs from the public to the private domains. Religion was once considered a public affair with far-reaching consequences for the entire community, but social change led to the rise of personal consciousness and the relegation of religious matters to the private sphere. Charles Taylor's entire project, in my opinion, is about this shift, from what he calls the poorest self to the private buffered self. Another significant shift Dewey discusses is the movement of behavior in intellectual matters from public to private realms. This change was driven by institutional, political, and ecclesiastical changes in the belief that permitted a large measure of personal judgment and choice in intellectual matters to better serve the interest of the community. Dewey also points out that toleration in matters of judgment and belief remains largely a negative matter. And when Dewey says negative matter, he is meaning a negative freedom as opposed to a positive freedom. A quick summary of this concept is that a negative freedom is the absence of external constraints on the individual's actions, whereas positive freedom is the presence of conditions that enable an individual to act accordingly to their own will and desires. Now let's go to the next section. So in the second half of this chapter, Dewey brings in the concept of, of the command theory of common and statute law and how laws and regulations of the state are misconceived as commands. As such, Dewey is arguing in the section of the book that the concept of authority, of rules, has been rationalized by creating a make-believe absolute. Let me quote Dewey here. Dewey states, The next dialectical conclusion is that the will in question is something over and above any private will or any collection of such wills. Semicolon. Is some overruling general will. This conclusion was drawn by Rousseau, and under the influence of German metaphysics was erected into a dogma of a mystic and transcendent absolute will, which in turn was not another name for force only because it was identified with absolute reason. The alternative to one or other of these conclusions is surrender of the causal authorship theory and the adoption of that of widely distributed consequences, which, when they are perceived, create a common interest and the need of special agencies to care for it. Boom. Dewey, his phrasing can be awkward and is one of the reasons I have to read a passage like this three or four times to grasp its meaning. But once you get it, it's pretty profound. He's talking about the idea of distributed consequences and how this is important and how rationalization and universalization are dangerous to allowing for particular contingent human experiences to flourish. It's a form of authoritarianism that's wrapped up in this whole idea of absolutes and using reason to generate these rationales for absolutes. You know, it's all about why should one justification of a will be more justified than another? 
his whole idea is that we need to talk about that. Just because you say so doesn't mean it's necessarily true, nor is it necessarily justified. Is what you're saying or asking or prescribing or telling other people to do, but is this actually something that works? Is it making our society better? That should be the objective. So this is centers around the conclusion that is drawn that the will in question is an overruling general will, something above any private will or collection of such wills. This concept was further developed into the idea of a mystic and transcendent absolute will, identified with the concept of absolute reason. Dewey suggests that this is merely a rationalization used to justify the authority of rules and instead propose an alternative view that focuses on the widely distributed consequences of actions and the creation of common interests. What really matters is what transpires from our actions, not what some predefined set of rules that mostly men came up with, but even if it was men and women, or just women that came up with, it doesn't matter. What matters is the consequences of our actions here, today, right now, because our actions today have no relevance on when the actions were taken hundreds of years ago. The world we live in now is unique and deserves creative intentionality. Dewey then moves on to the role that reason and logic are some sort of are somehow woven into the fabric of the laws of the universe. This is incredibly dangerous to think that a human created conception of logic is somehow universal through the fabric of the universe. It's completely incoherent and is dangerous. You can't make a priori generalizations, deductive generalizations, using logic to then subvert the freedoms of other people. And we pretend that we're not subverting the wills of other people because we can say, no, this is based off of logic. But logic is a man-made concept. Now, we need certain forms of logic in order to make sense of our world. But what happens is, and as Dewey talks about in this book, the seduction of power that comes along with people who are in a position of power and who can use these modes and these uh, methods for their benefit. Dewey moves on to what role laws should have within a society. And I love the concept he uses. He explains that rules of law serve as a structure to guide and channel people's actions when they make agreements with one another. He compares the function of legal rules to the banks of a stream, which help confine and direct the flow of water. Without these legal structures, agreements between individuals would be vague, unmanageable, and unpredictable. I love this metaphor. It's, it's very similar to my background in jazz. When you think of a jazz, let's say trio or quartet, it can be any, any collection of jazz musicians. What they normally do is they have a lead sheet. And the lead sheet gives you the melody and the chords and the form, very much like the banks of a stream. Because the banks of the stream are there, but what happens inside those banks is always changing. You never step into the same river twice. In a jazz tune, you play the melody, and there's usually a form. The most basic form is A-A-B-A. -A -A. You, got, you got the melody once, you get the A, and you get the melody. You usually repeat that melody. Then they go to a B section, and then they go back and restate the original melody. Then the jazz trio then will solo over the form. And what happens within that form? will never be the same twice. But what does happen all works within that form. To an outside observer that has no background in music, it could sound maybe chaotic. Like, why are they choosing these notes to solo? How do they know what the next chord is? How do they know that this G7 is going to go to a C major 7, and then they're going to go to a D major and modulate and go into an E minor 
whatever. So how do they know all this? It's part of the form of the music, the riverbanks that the stream fits within. But what happens in there is that creativity, courage, the agency to reharmonize while you're within the song, to reinterpret the chord structures, but within a framework that makes sense to the people that you're working with in that jazz trio, because they understand the vocabulary you're working with. This is like in our society today, we need to create new metaphors and new vocabularies to articulate the experiences we're having within these banks. This takes practice. This is why jazz musicians practice all the time. This is why all musicians and all artists are always practicing because it's a continual process of discovery, renewal, and also destruction because we change over time, just like our societies change over time. And if we don't work on that muscle of practicing, working on new vocabularies, new metaphors, new ways of articulating the new world we're living in every moment, we become stale, we become confused, we become anxious, we feel like maybe we can't find those banks. Where are those banks of the river? We become agitated and we become lost. This is why I'm trying to create a place for people to think about these ideas of of metaphors and vocabularies, and specifically focus on articulating our moral narratives, our virtues. What is important to us? What are we working towards? Should we be working towards anything? I, I say we do, but maybe, that, maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. But who on the left is currently talking about this? I feel like the right has completely monopolized this discussion, and they have a very particular way of articulating what they believe the good life should be. It's a life that's completely removed from our current temporality. Do we really want to have one half of the United States of America, them articulating what everyone else should be doing? Or should we find our own vocabulary and our own ways of articulating our vision that is open to their visions, but we also challenge them to be open to ours? How do we on the left get to a point where we can have a dialogue and also a coherent framework that we can work from? That doesn't shut down debate. Now, if we go back to the, the jazz metaphor, when you're playing in a jazz trio, maybe the soloist will decide to play outside the key. You know, it's called sidestepping. Now, this may challenge the other players, the members of the trio to listen and see where they should go with that. They don't stop playing and say, what you just did is outside the rules of the tune we're playing. Let's start over again. Or you're done. You're fired. No, 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 no. The, the song goes on, the music goes on, and the other members in the group are challenged to react to it and to continue to contribute to that song in real time while it's moving along and making sure that there's a coherence to it as it moves along. And the whole idea is that this journey through this solo will eventually wind back up at the top of the song, at the top of the form, and everyone will come back in and restate the head. And everyone needs to be listening to each other, giving and pulling, ingesting what they're hearing, maybe pushing back. Sometimes in a jazz song, in, in, in an actual performance, someone will be going somewhere and the group's just not feeling it. So they won't support that. They'll stay there, but they won't support it. So the thread goes away. But they don't stop. They don't shut down the performance. You know, what? one of the problems I have today with a certain manifestation that's coming from the left is that... If someone says something that doesn't fit within the current agreed upon, you could say harmony that we're working within, it's shut down. That person's shut down and they're not allowed to speak and they're excommunicated from the group. 
I just don't see how we're going to get through this crisis we're currently in, and that is getting worse. If we're going to not be open to at least gaining the tools and the resiliency to allow those sorts of thoughts and ideas that are put into the world through articulating through speech or writing and not be able to say, let's see what you're saying and how can we come to terms with this? I'm not saying let's agree to disagree. I think that's the worst saying we have. Oh, I agree to disagree. Oh, I'm just going to walk away because we're just never going to meet out of eye. That's it's cowardly. And it, equally cowardly is to just shut people down who say something you don't like. I, I just don't understand how we're going to get anywhere for that. And it's just like to get back to the jazz metaphor. Could you imagine going to a jazz show, a music performance? Someone plays a, a C sharp on a, or an E flat on, the, on, a, on a C major chord. And the whole band stops. And they're just like, I'm sorry, man. You just played the flat third on the major third chord. We're done. You're out. End of discussion. Everyone in the audience is like, what's going on? I don't understand. Yeah, it's just, but this is how we're, we're treating, the left is treating people on their side currently because they think slightly outside this ever-shifting, ever-shifting riverbanks, which seem to be getting narrower, narrower, man, narrower and narrower, these banks on the left. The whole idea of the left is supposed to be a big tent. We have people that come in. The whole, there shouldn't just be the left that has a big tent. The right seems to be understanding this. It seems like their tent's been getting bigger lately, and I am not into that. I, I, I am not into that, but their, their tent's getting bigger and the left's is getting smaller. In my 20s, it was like, I don't know. I don't know, man. I just feel like things have flipped. There was a flip in the last five years that the left is now becoming more authoritarian. I don't get it. And this is why I'm doing it. I'm talking about this. If you're listening to this and you're like, man, Jeff's, what the hell's wrong with this guy? I don't know. Let me know. I'll have you on the show and we can talk about it. Maybe you can teach me what I'm not understanding here. All right, I'm moving on. Dewey then goes on to talk about the fundamental role of government. Its laws is to produce a secure environment so people can engage in creative pursuits. Quoting Dewey, a new idea is an unsettling of received beliefs. Otherwise, it would not be a new idea. This is only to say that the production of new ideas is particularly a private performance. About the most we can ask of the state, judging from states which have existed thus far, is that put up with their production by private individuals without undue meddling. Then he states that a state, lots of states here, then he states that a state which will organize to manufacture and disseminate new ideas and new ways of thinking may come into existence sometime. But such a state is a matter of faith, not sight. When it comes, it will arrive because the beneficial consequences of new ideas have become an article of common faith and repute. It may indeed be said that even now the state provides those conditions of security, which are necessary if private persons are to engage effectively in discovery and invention. But this service is a byproduct. It is foreign to the grounds on which the conditions in question are maintained by the public. Dewey is really focusing on the fact that the state and government in general is not the place for new ideas to emerge from. You should not rely on your government for new ideas, is what he's saying. I happen to agree with that, kind of. But let's see what else. I think in an ideal world, the state and the public would engage in a sort of back and forth. I can see I, I should just read what I had written because that's that there's kind of a porousness between the private and the public. It should be an ongoing conversation. They should not be separate as we view it now. I mean, the ideas must flow from the public into the government, and good ideas could emerge from the government and feed back into the public. In a way, this is like the function of all these think tanks these days, with, which are private, but I really see them as quasi-public-private enterprises, institutions, whatever you want to call it, firms, due to their functional role as embedded within the operating environment of the Washington, D.C. power broker system. 
just think of, there's all these, you know, I got my public policy graduate degrees. I had to read these papers that come out of these Washington DC think tanks. Most of the time they're writing these papers, not for you or me, they're writing them for the staffers who are working for these Congress people and the White House staff and the people in Treasury and the Fed, Federal Reserve, and the other branches and the other institutions. I, that's who they're writing for because they're trying to influence them to influence policy that's going on behind the scenes, mostly for bureaucrats. Most of these things are written for people who aren't elected. And it does make a difference. I have seen it make a difference. Here's something totally unscripted. There's a think tank. They're relatively new. Their whole idea is to get full employment. They're called uh, Employ America. Now, I read most of what they write. It's just focused on economics mostly, which is my it's something I'm very passionate about. They started proposing, I guess it was a year ago now, might be more. Don't quote me on it, but it was about a year ago, I think, that when Biden was taking all the, was depleting the, uh, the strategic oil reserves. And we got down, I think, the lowest we've ever had it in modern times. That's when the gas prices were super high and he was using that to help people lower gas prices. But of course, when you're lowering the gas prices, it's just going to increase demand because it's less, you know. But but the, one of the problems of our society is that we decided we're going to privilege cars in, a, in an infrastructure that privileges cars, which of course disproportionately hurts people living on the margins and middle-class people because you have to buy a car if you want to do anything. You cannot in the United States of America exist without a car. Yes, there's a few places, but what this does is that when things get like that the the price of oil has an incredible impact on people's bottom line and especially people living on the margins. So he distributed all this oil you know, from the strategic reserves and oil was still was like a, over $100 a barrel. I think it was in the 120s, 130s. I think it even topped the 40. Again, don't quote me, but I remember it was pretty high. So this think tank, Employ America, started writing these, this idea by using the futures market and using the, the way the futures curve works, backwardation and forwardation. I'm not going to go on that in this podcast, but they said one of the problems is that since we're going through this energy transition, if you are an investor, one of the last things you're going to do is invest in creating a new oil field because it takes a very long time to invest in an oil field and get that going to create oil. But we still need oil for this transition until we get to the end of the clean energy transition. So how are we going to get enough oil to ensure that we don't have a crisis where we don't have enough clean energy to meet demand? So what they're saying if the federal government buys a put option and says, we will buy oil at $80 a barrel or $70 a barrel, that will tell investors that there's always a buyer at that price. So they can do their math and they can say, listen, we can invest the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. I don't know the exact amounts. I'm not an expert in this field, but we know that there will be a buyer, it's the federal government, that they will always refill the strategic oil reserve when it hits with, say, $80 a barrel because they have said they, they bought all the put options there. So they wrote these articles, and guess what? Four months later, the Biden administration said they were going to employ that strategy. I guarantee you they got that from the Employee America think tank. I guarantee it. That's how these think tanks work. But that's, a, that's an example of public-private like talking to each other, even though they're separate, but they're, that's a working together. So that's the government actually being creative and doing something creative instead of just the private sphere being creative. I thought it was pretty cool. I did not have this plan to talk about. So where was I on, on my notes here? I do agree with Dewey, though, overall, that the creative process is primarily a private affair. And no state as of yet has emerged where the state takes a leading role in this. Let's say the next section, Dewey stakes out a distinction between individualism and socialism in regard to when the psychological tendency for people to prefer well-established habits and to avoid interference with those habits 
and this inclination leads to a general disposition to hand over highly standardized and uniform activities to public representatives of, or the state. There are certain functions in society which do not demand innovation or continual disruption. And Dewey is suggesting these should be seen as something the state should take over and that this is not a form of socialism. Dewey surmises that possibly one day, and I quote, this is funny, the efficiency of liberation from attention to whatever is regular, recurrent, is reinforced by an emotional tendency to get rid of the bother. Hence, there is a general disposition to turn over activities which have become highly standardized and uniform T. to representatives of the public. It is possible that the time will come when not only railways will have become routine in their operation and management, but also existing modes of machine production, so that businessmen, instead of opposing public ownership, will clamor for it in order that they may devote their energies to affairs which involve more novelty, variation, and opportunities for risk and gain. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, it, the exact opposite happened in the United States. What we had is, is, had is, is this massive consolidation. What really happened is that entrepreneurs and CEOs and boards of firms were absolutely terrified of risk and opportunity, real opportunity. What they did is just consolidated everything and and they weakened the state in the process too. They got the state to let go of things that they should not have let go of and privatized it. It's the hollowing out of the public sphere of the state, the hollowing out of the state. One aspect, one branch of neoliberalism. I wrote here like, bless Dewey's heart, I mean, as he had not yet been subjected to the ravages of the neoliberal economic order. Because what happened instead was what I would describe as a violent and rapid consolidation of industry that had achieved efficiencies and routines in the order that Dewey was thinking about and the state would assume. This consolidation has led to the rapid escalation of income inequality in this country as the efficiencies earned instead of being enjoyed by the workers who produce these efficiencies have been siphoned off through mergers and acquisitions and redirected to the managerial and C-suite class as well as into the global financial machinery. This is critical. This is the flow of the financial machinery here. It is kind of quaint to read this now before Hayek, Friedman, Stiegler, and von Mises co-opted the American dream. As we're getting on here in time, this one's getting long, I want to summarize the last bit of this section. Dewey re-emphasizes that things such as minimum wage should not be left up to the private sector. Duh. But believe me, today, right now, people still argue that the minimum wage shouldn't exist. I mean, I don't know, man. So to quote Dewey, while public regulation of minimum wage is still a disputed matter, the argument in behalf of its appeals to the criterion stated, the argument in effect is that a living wage is a matter of such serious indirect consequences to society that it cannot be safely left to the parties directly concerned, owing to the fact that immediate need may incapacitate one party to the transaction from effectively bargaining. This seems like common sense, but I think this is still confusing to, pe to many people who wish to purposefully ignore the indirect consequences society absorbs if we were to let private firms to set their own lowest wage. I've heard many people say that, well, the firms will not pay poverty wages because they need the people to be able to afford where they live and blah, blah, blah. But this is ridiculous because what happens is people get to the point where they either are homeless, where their child is going to starve to death, or they take this incredibly demeaning unsafe job so they can make a few pennies so they can at least feed their child. That's because this is what happens. You create the conditions where people become so desperate, they will do whatever it takes to make a few dollars to at least get some food. And then the public needs to absorb this externality. 
through social services, through providing homeless shelters. The vast majority of people want to work. The vast majority of people want a good life. The people who the right always likes to demonize as being lazy or drug addicts and all these things. It's such a small percentage of the total population of the United States, of, of the world. Most people want to do something good with, with their lives. This is where this idea that Dewey was even saying 100 years ago, it's like laughable to think that private firms should be left to creating a minimum wage because they will destroy society in the process. I mean, look at the United States right now. How are things going? How's it going out there? Dewey again reminds us that fixity, universals, when it comes to the state and the public and how to organize this relationship is very bad. To quote, the very fact that the public depends upon consequences of acts and the perception of consequences while its organization into a state depends upon the ability to invent and employ special instrumentalities shows how and why publics and political institutions differ widely from epoch to epoch and from place to place. To suppose that an a priori conception of the intrinsic nature and limits of the individual on one side and the state on the other will yield good results once and for all is absurd. This patches ties in with Dewey's insistence that universals are problematic because they assume fixed distinctions, whereas the reality of public and state activities is much more complex and contingent on various factors and demands creativity. I mean, this is what Dewey's just keep, he keeps rearticulating this. There are no universals. Nothing is permanent. Everything is always becoming. Everything demands our courage to meet it and to engage creatively, courageously, and that we all have the agency to make the world we wish. So as we come to a close to the second chapter, Dewey spends some time warning against the conceptualization of the state and the government as separate entities. This is something we do here in 2023. Let's see what Dewey has to say. So quoting Dewey, but since the public forms a state only by and through officials and their acts, and since holding official positions does not work a miracle of transubstantiation, there is nothing perplexing or even discouraging in the spectacle of the stupidities and errors of political behavior. The facts which give rise to the spectacle should, however, protect us from the illusion of expecting extraordinary change to follow from a mere change in political agencies and methods. Such a change sometimes occurs, but when it does, it is because the social conditions in generating a new public have prepared the way for it. The state sets a formal seal upon forces already in operation by giving them a defined channel through which to act. Conceptions of the state as something per se, something intrinsically manifesting a general will and reason, lend themselves to illusions. They make such a sharp distinction between the state and the government that, from the standpoint of the theories, government may be corrupt and injurious, and yet the state by the same idea retains its inherent dignity and nobility. Officials may be obstinate, proud, and stupid, and mean, yet the nature of the state which they serve remains essentially unimpaired. Since, however, a public is organized into a state through its government, the state is as its officials are. Only through constant watchfulness and criticism of public officials by citizens can a state be maintained in integrity and usefulness. Man, there's so much in there. It's just really powerful. We're coming to a close of this second episode. My God, we're at the second episode. I'm going to jump ahead a paragraph or so, so as not to overdo the quoting. Quoting Dewey, again, finishing this up by saying, Since there is no one thing which may be called society, except their indefinite overlapping, there is no unqualified, eulogistic connotation adhering to the term society. Some societies are in the main to be approved, some to be condemned, 
on account of their consequences upon the character and conduct of those engaged in them and because of their remoter consequences upon others. All of them, like all things human, are mixed in quality. Society, in quotes, is something to be approached and judged critically and discriminatingly. Socialization, in quotes, of some sort, that is, the reflex modification of wants, beliefs, and work because of share in a united action is inevitable. But it is as marked in the formation of frivolous, dissipated, fanatical, narrow-minded, and criminal persons in that of competent inquirers, learned scholars, creative artists, and good neighbors. Dewey's discussion highlights the common mistake of separating the state from the government, which can lead to the belief that the government is flawed while the state remains virtuous. This happens all the time today. This is similar to the modern sentiment that the government may be broken or inefficient, but the country is great. Dewey emphasizes that the state is formed through its government and officials, and thus the state's integrity and effectiveness depends on the actions and behaviors of these officials. He argues that only through constant vigilance and critique by citizens can the state maintain its integrity and usefulness. Essentially, Dewey stresses the importance of holding government officials accountable to preserve the state's positive qualities. Dewey also emphasizes the concept of society is not a monolithic entity, but rather consists of countless associations and groups, each with different interests and effects on individuals. In the modern world, we often fall into the trap of viewing society as a singular entity or making sweeping generalizations about this nature. For example, discussions about political polarization often treat society as a homogeneous entity, dividing into two opposing camps. In reality, society is far more complex and nuanced, with individuals belonging to various groups and associations that may hold differing views and values that can overlap or not. Dewey's perspective urges us to recognize this complexity and approach society with a critical and discerning mindset, considering the multifaceted associations that make up our social interactions. A modern example can be seen in the rise of social media, where echo chambers and the spread of misinformation exacerbate political divisions. Instead of succumbing to this simplistic view of society as a homogeneous entity, we should embrace Dewey's call for critical engagement and recognize the diverse associations and perspectives that contribute to our collective experience. Okay, I'm closing out here. Dewey sums up this chapter by pointing out the plurality of social forms and individuals that constitute a state does not mean the state should only provide courts for administering dispute resolutions or punishment for criminals, but should in fact be whatever it needs to be for the needs, desires, and local contingent circumstances of the public. And what ultimately matters are the consequences, and that those consequences should guide how the state operates. I'm going to quote the entire last paragraph of the book. It's not too long. And then remark on, some, on this some more. Dewey closes chapter two by saying, I quote, the hypothesis which we have supported has obvious points of contact with what is known as the pluralistic conception of the state. It presents also a marked point of difference. Our doctrine of plural forms is a statement of a fact that there exists a polarity of social groupings, good, bad, and also indifferent. It is not a doctrine which prescribes inherent limits to state action. It does not intimate that the function of the state is limited to settling conflicts among other groups, as if each one of them had a fixed scope of action of its own. Were that true, the state would be only an umpire to avert and remedy trespasses of one group upon the other. Our hypothesis is neutral as to any general sweeping implications as to how far state activity may extend. It does not indicate any particular polity of public action. At times, 
The consequences of the conjoint behavior of some persons may be such that a large public interest is generated which can be fulfilled only by laying down conditions which involve a large measure of reconstruction within that group. There is no more an inherent sanctity in church, trade union, business corporation, or family institutions than there is in the state. Their value is also to be measured by their consequences. The consequences vary with concrete conditions. Hence, at one time in place, a large measure of state activity may be indicated, and at another time, a policy of quiescence in laissez-faire. Just as publics and states vary with conditions of time and place, so do concrete functions which should be carried on by the states. There is no antecedent universal proposition which can be laid down because of which the functions of the state should be limited or should be expanded. Their scope is something to be critically and experimentally determined. One of the main complaints levied against Dewey is that he does not provide prescriptive actions people can take to enact the theories he postulates. I've seen this in some of the books I have behind me on pragmatism. There's a I believe a faction of pragmatists who were very much into the logistics, logics, logicians, you know, they don't like Dewey. They want a simplified world, in my opinion. They want some answers. They want a, they want a paint by numbers world, in my opinion. I, I, I think this criticism by them is pretty lame. I mean, because if we just read, if we just, that last paragraph I just read, if you understand what Dewey's saying, he's saying there are no prescriptions. There are no universals. There are no immediate answers. Every situation is new and contingent upon the time and place and the people who are making it up. And it's incumbent upon the public to understand this and use the tools of critical thinking, of creativity, of taking risk, of also being risk averse when it's necessary, of understanding the roles of the state, of the public, of all the different individuals who make up a society. So the fact that you're going to say, Dewey doesn't tell us what to do, I'm saying you don't even understand what Dewey's saying. How can you even be a professor writing these academic books and say something like that? How do you even how do you even do that? Dewey lays it all out. It's up to us to do the work. I, I, I just I feel like a lot of people just don't want to do the work. I'm going to end episode two right here. I want to thank you for joining me. This one was more freeform, less reading from a script. I just finished chapter three. I'm going to finish my notes and record that. You can find me in all the places that you get your podcasts from. I have a Patreon if you want to contribute to that. I will be posting the show notes with resources and links to things that I talked about here and the the topics I talked about and the books and the ideas. We'll see you next Tuesday for Chapter 3 of The Public and Its Problems by John Dewey and which corresponds to Episode 3 of Reviving Virtue. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week. So long.